0: Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked.
1: Interlinked.
0: What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger?
2: Interlinked.
1: You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, The Blade Runner Podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, The Blade Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm great. It's been a while. It's, it's, it I feel while. like we haven't
0: recorded in a while. And what a great you know reason to congregate to record today, because we have a, one of the short list of guests that we have wanted to have on the show since we started it five six years ago nearly actually over six years ago now. Um and that of course is none other than Ivor Powell who's joining us today from England. And we are so thrilled to have you here, Mr. Powell.
2: Hello all. Yeah. Welcome to be on the program. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So uh so
0: today we're going to cover you know quite a kind of gamut of things. As everybody I'm sure knows, uh Ivor was involved among other things with Alien as well as Blade Runner and 2001 a Space Odyssey and the Duelist and a million other projects. Uh, And we're going to kind of prioritize the Blade Runner content today a little bit just because this is going out on shoulder of Orion first. And, um, you know, we've taken about a month off from that show when we want to come back with a vengeance for you today. So uh, we're going to kind of focus on Blade Runner. And I guess to that end, if we can kind of rewind for a moment, we'll go back through meeting Ridley. And I know you're a lifetime friend of his and things like that. Before we get to all that, can you take us back to like the earliest days of Brighton productions? Because that to me feels like such a seminal moment in the history of blade runner, you know, setting up the office, getting the team assembled, working with, you know, Fancher's script, getting the building set up. Can you kind of take us back to the headspace of those very earliest days? Oh, when this? are became, we, are we, are we the... still
2: in England? Are we still in England or have we arrived in the States? Cause <laughs> there's a fair bit happened in England before, um, while we were kind of, uh, deciding what, what, what script we were going to do next. And, uh, I think we 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 knew Michael Deely because we he at the time was head of EMI and we'd been touch base with a couple of projects with him, uh, one medieval project called Night, etc. Um, and uh, so at least we we kind of uh, we we were friendly, and um, I think Michael sent uh, a copy of, of of Hampton's very first uh, or early script. Uh, of of a blade runner do you know do androids dream of electric sheep or dangerous days as, as it was known then and um I think um I think Ridley read it first and um and he was he wasn't to my to my memory and remembrance he wasn't a hundred percent on it mind you who is on any very few scripts make you uh you know jump jump off the wall uh, straight away in excitement but anyway um i i eventually uh, we were still kind of making commercials uh, in between trying to develop projects and um eventually i i'd heard about it and i asked to read it and i read it and i really i i i sort of for whatever it's worth i said to him i think you should really seriously reconsider this because it was kind of up my street uh, as as i was kind of I guess more of a sci-fi buff than than Ridley was um, historically and um, so anyway so ultimately we ended up getting involved and going out uh, to the states and um, it's a very gray area as to, as to you know basically because Ridley and I at that point were busy trying to find some you know places to live and um, kind of get used because I hadn't spent much time really uh, of any length in LA so there was all of that to do and get get used to everything until we obviously ended up i think i think our f- first main offices were were on sunset brighton productions and um yeah uh so i it's 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 a long long story i don't think you've got got time for it on this so all i remember is that there were obviously hiccups on the way because filmways was the first company we went with and then unfortunately they um went down um when we were getting pretty you know close to the uh, we were building sets and everything like that so uh, it was it wasn't uh, it wasn't necessarily that smooth a run and no no movies are really you know going through all the casting and everything anyway well that's kind of some of my memories anyway
0: and you you read about filmways backing out uh, in the trade magazines is that right
2: i did i did yeah i i did i think i was the first person to, uh, to 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 read it and all i know i seem to have vague memories of getting in a lift with ridley and michael and probably katie um in the morning for some reason and i just mentioned it and there was yeah it was kind of a a silence and uh, then then basically the the flurry which obviously michael and ridley led um having far more con- well having many more contacts than I ever had there I, I had none and um yeah desperate in and in kind of uh, the, the the panic controlled panic not 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 panic uh, to find you know new new finance and new backers and thank God for good old um you know Alan Ladd Jr and his team
1: So there was Alien released in 1979, which really changed the game in terms of the genre of science fiction. It elevated that, that you know, that uh, haunted house essentially, as Ridley Scott has yeah. notoriously said. So coming down from, and film like that, which again changed the game, was there any persuasion happening from maybe outside friends or producers that wanted to get? you and ridley back into sci-fi i mean obviously so blade runner will come next but before that was officially happening was that where headspace was or was just no that was a film that we made we're not necessarily looking for another sci-fi picture but i know oftentimes with studios they find a hit they want another one so i'm wondering if there was any pressure on that end i think um in my in my mind,
2: obviously, it was it was my my genre that I have loved since since childhood. Um, I think Ridley would uh, was happy to you know it was open minded to all kinds of things. As as I've mentioned before, I seem to remember we were uh, the, the 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 delightful Gordon Carroll, um, who was one of the main um, you know the uh, guys running Brandywine with Walter Hill and David Guiler. They uh, I remember uh, Gordon offered us uh, a script written by Dana Bannon called Blue Thunder, which, which obviously you know about. And um, that wasn't sci fi, really. It was kind of, you know, an action movie um, with slightly leanings to the future, obviously, with the uh, helicopter technology. But um, it was good, you know, and we were getting you know, we went out of the States, I remember. Um, and Gordon Carroll, you know, had hired a, 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 a helicopter to take us, fly us over Los Angeles at night, you know, and just get the, suck up the atmosphere, the vibe, which was fantastically exciting. And, um, you know, it was a good, really interesting script. And I think, you know, had, you know, history been slightly different, you know, and Ridley had made it, it would have been a, it would have probably been a, a, a slightly more interesting, better movie. Not to say that it wasn't a good movie. But it would have been just that little bit different i think probably visually more interesting for sure so but anyway just uh we basically inclined towards um towards uh, towards dangerous days um uh, although ridley clearly wanted to open it up you know uh, so in answer to your question i don't think there was any real pressure for us to find we just wanted to find another good script good subject to do and we had been exploring kind of medieval stuff you know going you know, doing fantasy stuff Ridley and I had even tried sort of at the time before I kind of you know when I was still struggling away trying to learn about basically script writing and everything like that we you know we had uh, some interesting moments in the office trying to work out something uh, uh, working out a fantasy screenplay for Tristan and Assault. um and uh so yeah we we were we were we were wide open really receptive to anything as long as it was good and tickled ridley's fancy really
0: so you mentioned sci-fi has always been close to your heart and i think looking at your filmography is not not a surprise can you take us back to how you got into films in in the first place and and maybe why you gravitated toward that genre so much over the years
2: um i'm one of those lucky devils um who had um a, a, a relative, a, a sort of significant relative who worked in the industry, but not actually in the movies. She was she was my aunt and she was a film critic and a called Dillis Powell, who was, you know, very celebrated in her day um on television and all, all over the place, uh, who wrote for um, the Sunday Times newspaper in England. And um I remember um I I had a really you know uh, privileged education and I in theory I I guess my father ideally would have wanted me to head towards some other profession uh, and I hadn't a clue what the movie industry was about all I know is that from early days when I saw movies you know um horror movies sci-fi movie or all movies you know I was just hooked and I wanted to be part of it and originally I think i was um i think my 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 folks paid for some um dramatic lessons with quite a well known um drama coach uh, i was probably pretty hopeless and uh, anyway my my aunt just gave me um when i decided to leave my education at like 16 which was early um um and I just she just gave me some introductions and I would just literally did the rounds but, but with fantastic introductions of you know people in England who were like Anthony you know Sir Anthony Asquith, Sir Michael Balkan all these people who Dillis kind of knew and I went along sort of to, to meet them and they looked at me <laughs> I'm not sure how they looked at me but and I was basically in a long queue for being a like a t-boy or whatever and um and eventually uh, kind of uh, I I'd, I'd managed to get myself a job well no, hang on a minute going back in order I, I'd actually got a, my first kind of major job which was not what I wanted but I was incredibly lucky because of my aunt's connections with hM tenants who were the biggest theatrical western theatrical kind of impresarios of the time and um she got me an interview there and they put me on the New York cast of West Side Story with George Shakiris and uh, other, you know, I mean, the whole whole New York cast. And I was like a trainee on that for like nine months. Um, Again, probably looked at very disdainfully by other people who've had to work their backsides off to get to that position. And there was me with no experience, absolutely nothing um but I did six to nine months there absolutely you know my socks were blown away it was just fantastic a real privilege eye-opener lovely cast everybody was you know fantastic to me and then I got this sort of promotion across uh the Haymarket where the two theatres the Her Majesty's where West Side Story and then um the Theatre Royal where um uh Theatre Royal Haymarket I think that's the right theatre where um Terence Rattigan's latest play with Alec Guinness about Lawrence of Arabia um, was firing up and going into rehearsals. And um, so I got put there as a kind of a a trainee AFM. And uh, I did like about a year on that. And and after that kind of ended, and I had the privilege of acting on stage with, with Guinness, who again was like a mentor to me. He was bloody wonderful um sadly missed um i i then kind of i think i got a a job um with bbc who was a uh, tv who was again launching a, a new channel called bbc2 and so they were i got very very luckily recruited into that did a year in that and then i could have had a career in that i think um but uh, to their shock and to, slightly to me thinking i'm really doing the wrong thing I had this call from um, an office um, uh, of this guy called Roger Karras, who was publicity um, head of MGM at the time, but a good friend of Stanley Kubrick's. And and I asked if I wanted to come along to have an interview with him working as a publicity assistant. My God, you know, there's me again, jumping into something that I knew absolutely nothing about. And uh, so I met this Roger Karras and... um, ultimately got the job, went to meet the 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 Stanley's producer, Victor Linden, another mentor for my life, sadly missed. And I kind of started. Um, so, I mean, it, it, privilege, luck, all of it, you know, what can I say? And so three years later, I was, uh, you know, three years on a, on a movie and kind of still lacking in that real experience of you know being a freelance technician where you have to look out for work you know and uh uh, and it was it was scary because it was like uh you know I'm an only child and as such (laughs) kind of not quite the same having a you know lots of siblings and sibling rivalry you suddenly feel like you're in a family you always do on a movie and then suddenly it comes to an end and you think oh god what am I going to do now so I had to kind of jump out into the open world and um, get my, get work as a, you know, assistant director.
1: Before we pivot into more Blade Runner territory, my question for you is more, is really maybe as a younger man, as a child or as a teenager, was there a film that you saw in the theater that was like, boom, this is it for me. Like, this is my medium. This is where I want to be. Whether you're a performer or whether it's behind the scenes. And I know I have that story. I know Patrick has that story, many stories of being a younger person and being mesmerized by film and feeling like this medium is really speaking to me. So I'm curious if you have that for yourself.
2: Well, you'll you'll know from sitting in theaters and watching movies that, you know, especially as a child going there for like the first time, just, it's like a magic new world. And uh, my mother used to take me quite a bit, and um, I, I, I'm trying to remember the early, the, the early movies. I mean, the first two movies that made the major impression on me, which I've oft mentioned, which is Robert Wise's Day the Earth Stood Still with Michael Rennie. I mean, that just blew my socks off. I mean, uh, the music, just the everything, the, ro- the robot. Uh, Michael Rennie, uh, Patricia Neal. Yeah, it just—I I love that. I will love that movie until I pop my clogs. We have come to visit you in peace and with goodwill. Um, I loved the—I uh, loved all the B movies at the time. I mean, there were such crappy, you know, little horror movies that did usually had double bills. I but then kind of Hammer Films kind of went from there black and white movies to color they made s- several black and white sort of like Quatermass um, um movies and um I'm trying to remember what else they did but I think they made a couple of those and then when they made their first color movie which was, again was a double bill I think with a Sophie Loren movie called a woman of Rome and uh, it was called The Curse of Frankenstein with Christopher Lee and that blew my socks away uh from the point of view of horror I all those films just and, and of course the forbidden planet you know again another robot um so um it just and then I I I basically you know from then I started you know reading whatever I could get my hands on you know all the early science fiction writers um and uh, obviously when I did 2001 jumping a bit you know I, again Arthur C Clarke because I was a On the publicity team for the first sort of six months so-called I spent a lot of time with Arthur doing kind of who was around all the time kind of doing like going off to Twycross Zoo up north in Cheshire to kind of research monkeys and availability of chimpanzees and things like that for the dawn of man sequence and so you know it's crazy I spent all this time with him where and he introduced me to some of the great you know, he, A, the books that he felt that I should read other than his own ones. But I mean, uh, you know, things like people like Alfred Bester, who was at that time, I think, a journalist working for a magazine. I think it was Life or Look or something. But anyway, I, I met him. And so, I mean, and I, I remember Arthur, Arthur C basically saying to me, if there's one book you ever read, read Tiger Tiger. You know, The Star's My Destination which I did, and again, a film I've wanted to make all my life, and there have been various attempts at getting a, a screenplay cracked on it, and like everything, people have kind of drawn from it ideas and stuff, but anyway, that made an impression book-wise, so I, I just read all the sci-fi I could get my hands on at the time. Definitely going to read that book. <laughs> Tiger, Tiger by whom? It? Uh, by, by uh, It's by Alfred Bester, uh, The Star's My Destination. Yeah, yeah. You're not allowed to make it or encourage anybody to make it. So I want to make it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a weird, fantastic movie, a fantastic novel. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Is the uh, title a
0: William Blake reference? Do you know?
2: Yes, yeah. it is. Oh, I can't wait to read it. So anyway, it's, 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 it's brilliant. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, for me, it is anyway. But there were so many, you know, early of those, you know, apart from Arthur C. Clarke, who had all, you know, these fantastic visions and writers, you know, people like Richard um, Matheson and and Ray Bradbury, you know, Asimov. It goes on and on. They were just brilliant, and um, I I kind of—it's rather like movies nowadays. You kind of feel that you're you're as a vessel, you're kind of full up, and it's quite difficult to take new new movies on board now. And then make as much impression as some of the older ones did, because for me now, you know, the magic of cinema is is, is slowly vaporizing, which is really heartbreaking.
0: Hmm. Well, going back to a, a more magical time, uh, were you a fan sure. of Philip K. Dick's work as well as all these other great authors before? I, I was, I did, but I didn't,
2: I didn't really come to, to Philip K. Dick until that, a little bit later. Um, I don't know when I first read him. But um he wasn't he, he wasn't the earliest one of the earliest sort of tranche of writers that I read but um yeah he's he's brilliant wonderful yeah
0: and when you so when you got the you're talking about getting the script and I'm assuming you're talking about this is Fancher's um dangerous days yeah dangerous yeah. Days screenplay right uh, Yes. So this was pre people's coming on board. This was pre the script he writes yeah, for Ridley. Yeah, yeah. So can you give us like a little bit of insight? Because I've actually never read the Dangerous Days treatment for it. Like what it's, was so different about it? Uh,
2: it was very about people. It was not about the the vision, the sci-fi of the future. That you know the sort of the backgrounds, the cities, the everything. It was a very personal, and I'm a very in, and I think Hampton, actually uh, Hampton is too, I'm a very um, deep-seated emotional person, a big, uh, you know, wet blanket in some respects, and I just, it got to me, the whole business, um, there was, and I, I often quote this, there was a, A, a the sequence where basically um, uh, Deckard, Deckard is... On, on a rooftop and it's at the end. And I seem to remember, there's a scene with Rachel holding this live animal. And she basically, she's made up her mind. She's not going to live, she's had enough. And she just hands this animal to him and just steps off the roof. And of course, to to his utter mortification. And um, it was really, it, it hit one. And I remember the end sort of scene where Descartes has flown out in a spinner or whatever it was called in the, that early script, out just to kind of the desert outside the greater LA area. And he just sees and you can you, you, this turtle on its back. And he just watches as this thing writes itself um, and incredibly moving gets me going every time I know it probably doesn't seem describing and I think there's a little song that that plays or something called monkey 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 which was um uh uh, Hampton I'm damned if I can remember that I've I've got a copy of the a digital copy of the script sadly I think I I don't know where I've got the original one or um I may have got the original one somewhere but anyway I've got a digital copy and I I can't I can't remember exactly what what the the ditty was that Hampton put in there but anyway I I just remember that this original script was was very sort of um it was about people so it was introvert as opposed to extrovert and of course Ridley with his vision he wanted to turn it inside out and of course it has worked you know because I, I I doubt whether the movie it would have been a different beast you know um but it, it just, it it tickled my soul. It certainly got me. And um, I, I mean, David Webb Peoples, you know, put a whole, you know, a different side of things on there, you know, all the the kind of the, the, the kind of the, um, the, the, not the the street speak, the city dialects and everything like that, which funny enough, is in the main character in stars my destination gully Foyle is the main character and he speaks a kind of gutter speak that's what it's called in in that so you know everybody gets influenced by things in their life by whatever they read by what they see and consciously or unconsciously they it, you know if they're a writer or whatever they will it, it's there up there and they'll kind of use it you know But it was a, it was a, you know, both scripts have their, you know, have their merits, you know, and their strength and power.
1: 34 to 46. So, in terms of early days as a producer, and I want to, talk a little bit about producing because that's one of the things that people see producer in films and they're like what is a producer and that's always a, a question and i know a producer isn't just one thing it's many things you're doing many things at one time but on a, a, a picture like blade runner in terms of early days are you there with ridley scott making sure you're or making the script the best it can before you're moving on to okay who are we bringing in what what does that setup look like
2: well i think i i mean if I mean a producer historically is a guy um, who um kind of sets has the power the money the whatever it is this is going way way back you know going back to all those major sort of producers now obviously there were different you know forms of producers some like to be involved some just stand back once they've got the director and let them kind of get on with it but i mean in truth i was a i was an associate producer a line producer so basically i'd come up through the ranks uh privileged though I was I'd come up through the ranks and I'd you know so I knew and with especially with three years on 2001 I knew what people did I, I worked in the art department on that for like best part of a year or so so again I got an absolute close vision of what everybody does and again it, that three years gave me time um as a, a kind of a whatever the hell I was on the movie um to just study what everybody did And so I think that's important because as a line producer, you really are sort of expected to be the director's right hand and to help him in whatever ways he wants. Sometimes they don't welcome any creative input. Ridley didn't necessarily invite it or want it, especially if you said, you know, (laughs) you you know you you were responsible for some you know creative decision being made etc cetera, etc cetera. sometimes depending on his mood he wouldn't really um like that or relish that or um but um we did whatever you know whatever happened we we did actually have a a, a, a kind of a good relationship so in my opinion a, you know a producer an ideal producer is one who does have a knowledge uh does get involved creatively as much as is wanted um and just keeps um is keeps has his directors back um when things get out of hand which certainly on the first two or three movies that well the, the, the movies that i made with ridley were before he became a kind of an absolute kind of perfect working machine. I mean, uh, he, he, he he became as good visually as he w- w- became business wise. And um, it, it was a battle in in, the, in those early days, because he did, he was demanding, he pushed all the time, obviously, we went over budget on Alien, and um, which, which, again, was, was diff- put me in a difficult position, because I have a loyalty to the to the uh, the major or the financier that's putting up the movie, I, they're the they're the, usually I'm the one that they kind of look to, and at the same time I've got loyalty to Ridley, so it's a difficult balance. I remember Peter Beale, who was head of Fox production, head of Twentieth Century Fox at the time, who could be a, you know he, he he was had the same kind of training working up through the ranks as I did, and I remember he was very. He was actually very complimentary to me. He was been complimentary in the past about, you know, dividing my loyalties pretty well between Fox and Ridley. But um, Blade Runner, it was it was more difficult. Um, again, you know, as a as a producer on the team, um, because we were going quite heavily over budget, and because we now had got the particular financial setup that we had with Tandem and then with we can't with, with they were the guys who actually had to put up the money if we went over budget and we went over budget quite considerably and um i guess i have uh a, a, you know i can understand why they were pretty um you know um disgruntled put it that way um but anyway the, I, again a long-winded answer to your question you know sometimes these days you know uh, um producers can be x ex, um, studio executives they can be ex-agents etc cetera, etc cetera. and they, they not to say that they're not good but they haven't worked up through the ranks sometimes and so they have a slightly different perspective and so uh yeah and of course you have to do the budget certainly as a line producer which um you know is a is a difficult beast to, to get right you need to know your director
0: well, that brings me to a question that I have. And I also want to just point out how I, I'm just, as you're talking, realizing that you went, basically you were like inculcated in three of the most famously difficult film shoots of the era, like getting, getting your sea legs with Stanley Kubrick over a three year period, and then going basically straight to that, except for the duellists, into these two very famously difficult and over budget and stressful Ridley Scott productions um, or shoots rather that's a pretty i think it speaks a lot to you and and to your skill set and i guess what i'm what i'm wondering is you know the elephant in the room um he's not quite an elephant but it's really scott who as you know is is you know one of our absolute film heroes as you can tell by looking behind me in my office right now you know he's a huge part of our lives but somebody we've never spoken with before um and somebody that i'm wondering what do you think makes you well equipped to to deal with him because i know he's somebody who has a lot of very loyal you know peers and and workers he does. but in trouble sometimes
2: yeah. what's it like working with yeah. him um i don't know what it's like working with him now i would think it's a fairly well-oiled machine and obviously it's different now a a because ridley is not you know a a, a a teenager anymore whatever it is i i you know i he's he's older than i am and christ knows it's hard enough for, uh, as far as i'm concerned but h- how he has that strength i mean he is a very strong character um and um so i guess that the way the the way the industry's kind of changed is and 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 i found this with working on the 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 last movie that i did the, the finch was shot in new mexico with a big wonderful american crew but i hadn't shot a movie for quite some time i'd shot commercials but not a movie and i was just amazed at how you know, now, you know, the the, the lighting cameraman, the, the, the director sometimes spent quite a lot of time just basically looking at screens, etc. Um, you know, some multiple screens. It's not quite such a physically, I mean, Ridley was always behind the camera, you know, I did the camera, you know, as I'm sure you've heard of all the slight conflicts with him and 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 harrison about you know wanting to see the director wanting to kind of have a the director as a tangible force there to kind of just be there to sort of give him little tiny hints left and right and of course ridley's never i'm sure he probably has changed now because he's done so many movies but he was the 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 camera was a kind of a barrier between him and the actors um sometimes works and sometimes it obviously for the actors it was slightly difficult um so, um, just to uh, remind me of a question again, because I'm going off on a tangent. No, you, I mean, so, you're
0: answering it. It, it just, it, you know, in terms of Ridley Scott working with with him, you know, you've had such a fruitful career, uh, you know, in, in many ways, but a big part of it, I know, has been these Ridley Scott collaborations. So, I guess yeah. I'm asking about that working relationship, like how you know how to push back the right way, because you're mentioning how sometimes he can get prickly when some ideas come up if he's in the wrong mood, you know, but just the, yeah. the idea of right. working with Ridley
2: it's just that we spend a long time um making commercials together and I think at the time when we first met he he'd been working uh in television he trained us I think as an art director you know he did his art director course at the BBC and a director's course there um and then he moved to ITV and did and directed some you know reasonably well-known big TV series at the time before he formed his own. He worked for another production company making, then he went and left and made commercials because commercials were suddenly a burgeoning industry. And he saw the the money and the the fact that he could be kind of independent and autonomous doing that. And um, so he worked for this commercial company called, I think, Natural Breaks, they were called. And then he started up his own company. And, I mean, he was pretty, he was still, we all were but he was still green kind of when I I first started working with him you know it wasn't yet a well-oiled machine he had these beautiful offices in Lexington Street in Soho and uh, all these fantastic people kind of it was a young vibrant you know trendy whatever um, company to be involved with and um, I think we just we made a lot of commercials and originally I was taken on and again an oft-told story by a very dear friend of mine who was my second assistant director who became um a a well-known producer in his own right a guy called Paul Cowan and he just basically had rang me up one day and said look I've got a I've got a, a, a booking on a TV commercial it's a day's work Et and now I've been given another booking, a couple of weeks' work and I de- you know, I really want the money. Do you know anybody who'll do the day's work so that I can opt out? And I said, yeah, me, I need the money, I'll do it. So I met Ridley on that day and the moment he heard that I worked on 2001, he's li- his eyes lit up and I think something, you know, there was an accord there. And I basically started working for his company fairly regularly as um, a first AD and then there was a, a kind of a, a little mini exodus, mini revolution in the company of people who went, who were still my friends, incidentally, who, who exited to form their own company, leaving a void, a producer void. And so basically I and another friend of mine, first AD, Paul Liverson, we were both asked if we wanted to become, you know, the producers there. Um, and obviously we said yes. And uh, that's kind of where it all started. But we used to really make a lot of commercials. I mean, it really was a busy company. I mean, incredibly busy. And so we had these crews who worked for Ridley regularly, you know, um, who just owed him their absolute, their loyalty. They would bend on their, you know, bow on their sword to him. And so that, you know, made shooting in England and certainly doing the first movies, et cetera, that little bit easier. Because we had such a fantastic crew who knew how he worked. You know, obviously, that's how I learned how he worked. You know, I learned the moods, the whatever.
1: In terms of, again, the beginning of Blade Runner and walking into that picture, there's, of course, a legacy behind it. There's a lot of uh controversy to some degree, to some controversy. But really, it's the lasting uh legacy of the film and how it defined the genre of sci-fi. I'm curious if you and Ridley Scott, but more specifically you, did you know the film that was going to be made? Because there are some people... Who have discussed Blade Runner, and they're like, "Oh, we weren't really sure what this was about. We weren't really sure where the where this was going to go, what it was going to be." Were you clear on that? Probably, if I'm truthful, no, I didn't have the full vision of it. Um,
2: I know, uh, you know, there was a Chandler-esque quality certainly to the sort of early scripts, to, to Hampton scripts. You know, it was film noir. The you know, you obviously one. There's been much talk about the the voiceover and everything. I kind of knew. Obviously, I knew Ridley and what his vision was, Um and I think I did. No, I, I, I didn't. I didn't actually have the full picture. I mean, I knew. It, I mean, if, if I did one little tiny thing, it was my one of my contributions was literally getting Dougie Trumbull and his sort of company to work. on. I, I think that, you know, whatever small way, uh and I'm sure he'd have worked on it with or without my connection, but. um I think shooting the effects the way we did, you know, in sort of high resolution 65 or 60 millimeter film, that has made one of the major difference, because the effects, I mean, A, because Ridley's eye as well, uh, it's it's not a hugely wordy script. I mean, it's just, it's a kind of a, it's a visual odyssey, because I, I've been one of the, my loves of life, again, mm-hmm. since listening to things like Bernard Herrmann's music and Day the Earth still uh, and the, the, the off-the-wall music in Forbidden Planet. I love film music, absolutely love it. I mean, the, the stuff that gets to my heart. And I think this, you know, this as a visual odyssey and then with Dougie Trumbull's, you know, sort of perfection in effects, even though we were very limited there in the amount of money that we had, but then that with Vangelis's music, Again, on top. I mean, it's just amazing, and it's taken me quite a number of years, um, and I've seen lots of different versions. And I remember, I think it, it kind of first hit home with me a couple of years ago. when a, a friend of mine, Paul Salmon, who is has written books, obviously about Blade Runner, he invited me to a um, a showing uh, that he'd been invited to uh, from a really good like box seat position of Blade Runner with the London Philharmonic or somebody playing, you know, the, the music over the digital projection of the movie, which you think would be disconcerting because you're not kind of in the darkness or whatever, but it got to me. For, I hadn't seen the movie for a while and I just suddenly, I don't know, just really emotionally got to me. And um, whereas it hadn't somehow before, I mean, the there were a, a number of versions, you know, and I was part of me i think when i first saw it i think i have mentioned it before i was a little disappointed it was it was it was disappointing to go and see the movie at the beginning because it didn't the critics didn't like it as a whole in the same way they didn't like 2001 um it was a terrible shock and to go to screenings with some of your you know uh, your your kind of friends or people that you look up to are sort of seeing it, and they come out of the movie, and you kind of look at their faces, etc. It was hugely disappointing, and so it kind of, it I guess it influenced one. Um, but the picture, again, like two thousand and one, it just it endured. It found new audiences. Times changed, opinions changed, everything, and uh, I, I I'm so you know proud now of one's involvement in it, you know, um, it's fantastic. To, uh, I mean, you look at how high ratings it, you know, both Alien and that are still have incredibly high ratings. So obviously people still got to see it and, you know, new audiences waiting to discover it, you know?
0: Yeah, there's even podcasts who have been talking for hundreds of episodes about both of those movies and still have so much to talk about because they're enduringly, you know, amazing. Yeah. Well, I guess sort of as as we come towards the end here a little bit, uh, I I want to make sure we touch on Alien a bit before we close out because, Mm -hmm. of course, that's also very close to our hearts. Um, Do you have any stories from that that might not have made it into the books or things that you remember that you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: It's this has probably been talked about, but it was my job, like as as an associate, you know, line producer, or whatever it is, you kind of you don't spend as much time as you want. As if it's your, as if you're a writer or a an actual producer, you don't spend as much time on the set as you would like because you're you're doing things. You know, you're trying to, you know, you've been given jobs to do, like find, a, you know, try and find a seven foot high guy to play the alien, etc. Of course, Ridley's dread, you know, was. The idea of putting a man in a rubber suit you know i mean that was his absolute dread and of course so he literally knew that well he had the fear that ultimately we'd have to do something of the kind because cgi did not really exist in those days and um so, uh, you know, I, that was one of the little, you know, the jobs that, that, that befell me. And I just remember I was looking at women to start off with, you know, um, God help me, the the, um, the correctness of it now. But all I know is that, you know, all these very tall willowy models, because there, there was a kind of and, androgynous quality to the alien, uh, whether it ever came across or what, I think it did, but probably not as much as it, could have done had, you know, the uh, uh, effects be more sophisticated. But so we were looking at, you know, very tall, willowy women. And he wanted somebody who could literally crouch down on their knees and be so tall in their knee to thigh length of their leg that they would almost look like a praying mantis or something. There's sort of an insect quality about it. And so I had a wonderful time with all these beautiful women coming along. And I remember a choreographer friend of mine who I was talking to and again he i th- i think I put the word out to him about trying to find you know dancers or somebody who could move in a in a in a, in a really interesting way and he just said he was drinking at a bar or somewhere in London and he saw um god remember, remind me of his bless his heart his Balaji. name uh, Balaji. Balaji. and he saw this guy standing at a bar and he said I've seen this guy and I tell you he is he is tall he is thin he is something else and so we got him in, and uh, the, yeah, that that was that job done. Quite extraordinary. I can't believe he he left this planet so early. Um, poor poor man. Dear, oh dear. Um, yeah, one yeah one, one little story. Obviously, uh, obviously, the again the pressure that, that you kind of feel, and I, I, I again, I have mentioned it in it. Bears testament to Ridley's slight anger sometimes. I had to have two doors, the glass panel in my door of my office replaced at Shepparton, um because Ridley had <laughs> slammed them shut and smashed the glass, oh um, la- la- laying into me verbally over uh, God knows what or something or about somebody else. I can remember, yeah, Ridley always doodling on my script. And I remember <laughs> selling the script a number of years ago, and now I wish I hadn't the absolute uh obviously uh, the cast were lovely I mean they were all lovely you know um they were they were all charming and it was a it was um and an none more so than Sigourney who was I, I I think Ridley had slightly whispered into the ears of the cast to, not to be too friendly with her all the time just kind of to alienate her slightly forgive the pun because it would kind of give her a different vibe so to speak if you know, she was slightly, you know, unpopular, so to speak. Hence, Yafit and um, Harry Dean Stanton's sort of m- mood with her. That's there wonderful. are many stories, but I mean, I could just, you know, yatter on forever. Oh, those, um, those are great. John, fin- John, fin- John, fin- John Finch, after two weeks shooting, you know, playing, um, which other character, uh, uh, playing, uh, it, was Ke- uh, it was Kane, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, Kane. Um yeah, suddenly uh, having a, a problem with his heart and uh, basically having to withdraw the picture, and Ridley, you know, all of us having to accept the fact that we've got to go back to square one and start shooting again. It's probably when one of the glass doors in my office was broken, incidentally, when Ridley heard that news. It, it was not. It was not an easy shoot. It wasn't an easy shoot again. But it's you have to sometimes look back on it with a, a degree of sort of humor. It's quite. I mean, because, you know it was but again sets like other than 2001 sets like I have you know plaster work you know the silo um uh, and things like that that I have never ever ever seen uh, in, in any movie studio I mean just extraordinary a, go- a fantastic flipping team it really Maybe sounds easy. like it. I think the floor effects team I mean you know with Nikki Order and everything and, and all of them just absolutely brilliant would yes. do would not stop at anything to you know to help ridley and it, it it did show on the picture you know i mean it showed and it was incredibly exciting the buzz it's kind of hard to describe the buzz going you know over to la and i had this my kind of first time in la when we kind of went over for i was a bit late in that uh went over you know to suddenly to see the crowds of, of, of people literally going round fully around the whole square where the egyptian cinema was and uh yeah, amazing. What a buzz. It's incredible.
0: It's really part of history. Um, I, I only have one more question and I know Jamie has one more before we close. And mine okay. is related to Alien, which is there's rumors around the internet that Ivor Powell has written a treatment for an alien film that has not been made. Can you give us a little insight into I- that?
2: I wrote wrote something which had the support and liking of Walter Hill, David Giler and Gordon Cowell. Gordon was a very, was a bit of a mentor to me. I've had sort of several mentors in my life and he was certainly one. And he, I kind of started writing on 2001 um, and always in my spare time. It was always, you know, it's a lonely business and it's quite a selfish business and I had a family. But anyway, um, when um Alien had sort of ended, I kind of, um, I th- th- there was a point where I just felt the 20th Century Fox didn't want to make it. They, they'd kind of, I think, been very influenced by the sort of females who had been put off by the chest burst and everything like that, and they just probably didn't, you know, maybe they saw it as a fluke or what, the fact that it had been so successful, but they didn't have immediate plans to make a sequel. So I started writing something called Universe, which I think in my head now, looking back, I drew probably from Alpha Bestra and saw as My Destination, um, but I, I, I've written kind of several kind of weird versions in my head. But the, both Walter Hill and David and um, Gordon Carroll would seem to be pretty favor—you know—read it pretty favorably. And um, but the sad thing I think, if I understand it right, is that they had a de- that they decided Brandywine. Either they were looking to leave 20th Century Fox in their deal, or they had li- left and they, they moved across to Universal. And so they kind of said, well, we don't want to, we can't do that because, you, you know, it'll be 20th Century Fox territory. So can we turn it into something else? And he knew that, like Spartacus, which is, again, one of my, even though it's not not wasn't one of Stanley's favourite movies because of his experience and everything, but it was, again, one of the, you know, the movies that really um, completely kind of formed me, um he said can't we make it as some kind of spartacus in space which is a bit of a kind of a about turn so i anyway the short answer i still have it i still think it's really interesting got some good stuff going if i can find it ever um but you know it's just one of the things that you know when you sort of write that just sit on the back burner and uh, you know maybe they get going maybe they don't i don't know but um I would love to do it, but it, it requires so much strength and whatever, <laughs> you know, to to, to 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 push stuff out, you know, to write it. It's and in this environment at the moment, it's really really difficult. Even though there's so many streaming companies and so much, but it's
1: still difficult. I know? can imagine. Yeah, just uh, w- to to what you were saying earlier in terms of um, the cinema experience changing. I mean, I, I think I feel like we're it's changing. But we're on the cusp of something probably good, maybe with with the success of films like Oppenheimer and Barbie, and people seemingly wanting something more original as opposed to another remake or another that you know another sequel or another that. Um, which brings me to back to Alien, uh, and this is just basically a, a comment. Like and I've been talking about Alien with a friend of mine recently, and. We discussed 2001, and I just recently saw 2001 two days ago at the Alamo Drafthouse in Austin. It was my the first time on the big screen, and of course, obviously, it's just this amazing picture with no equal. There's just no equal. But I will say, I feel like, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know how Patrick feels, but I feel like Alien is in itself its own 2001. It takes elements of what 2001 did, but pushes them in a completely different direction. But it's more like The Forbidden Planet, where it creates these worlds that we've never seen and we've never seen since. I've never seen a film like Alien since Alien. Even though we have a couple of sequels, they didn't do what Ridley Scott did on the original. It's really stood the test of time, but it's this watershed moment that changed cinema that no one's really been able to get close to again. So, I mean, I'm i, I saying this to applaud your efforts and the, eff- and the efforts of everyone involved in this film. It's a film that really deeply moves me, and it's deeply terrifying, not just because there's an alien in it, but because of the atmosphere and how real it is, and it was made in a time where films felt more real than they do today, specifically. Um, so, again, applauding you and thanking you for helping to create such an extraordinary film but on the discussing sequels and my last question to you is is about a sequel um having been in, intimately involved in blade runner what did you think of blade runner 2049
2: um it didn't it didn't get to my heart um perhaps in the way Um, that I would have liked um it had it sure as hell had its moments he's a he's a a wonderful filmmaker um, believe me I mean I I I I think he's amazing and um it had a yeah great cast Ryan Gosling you know again uh, he's an awesome actor so um it just I don't know um it's maybe sometimes sometimes it's it's sequels sometimes are a a bit of a curse sometimes I feel you know because you've done it you know what it it has to be very for me it has to be very different and you really do have to sit and kind of undo the tapestry and try and work out why she's why I was so keen I think on on Alien I wanted to to, to, you know to go back and I uh, that's why it, it, it was it's quite an interesting idea you know but um you know none of the, none of the sequels did it for me and, and and 2049 didn't didn't quite do it for me um so uh i just think there are so many wonderful stories to be told you know let's let's have some of them for sure my different story here's me trying to um hopefully when this strike is over work with my 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 my, my writer uh, um associate um craig luck and and uh, get a sequel out on finch which is no easy task i'll tell you um but we'll, we'll see if that ever comes anywhere to light but it's you know it's because you're involved in it etc and you feel you've got more to say so uh, there you go well That's thank great. you
0: thank you so much for yeah. being here and, and just as we close out is there anywhere uh, we can direct our listeners to to keep up with you whether that be online or like just kind of stay in the loop on all things Ewar powell
2: I, I don't really i'm i'm not you know I of course i'm online but i don't really i'm not really um into kind of putting myself out there i'm just you know <laughs> so um uh, just w- watch the skies <laughs> <or something. laughs> that sounds good yeah. thank, thank you, you so, so much.
0: much this has been really my
2: pleasure thank you both very much i hope it works well
0: oh, it was perfect thank you have a wonderful wonderful thank weekend. you
2: thank you both okay bye-bye
1: If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.